You're listening to Curated Consciously, your all-in-one platform for navigating and nurturing your conscious living journey. Why? Because diving into environmental justice comes with heartache and a lot of damn work. We gotta do it, but as a community, we can make the load a little lighter. Every week, we're bringing you stories, insight, and wisdom from a diverse community of leaders, activists, and influencers helping you live a more holistic lifestyle that connects your health, wellness, and love from Mama Earth. This podcast is sponsored by Cause Artists, the world's number one platform for social impact and innovation stories around the world. If you're looking to get inspired, hit us up at causeartists.com. And of course, I'm your host, Jasmine Rain, curator-in-chief at Curated Consciously and social entrepreneur. You can connect with me and our community on Instagram at Curated Consciously. Now roll your shoulders back, get comfy, put the coffee on. It is time to deep dive into some thought-evoking conversation, curated consciously. Mansi, what was it like growing up in an Indian household? Uh, I think growing up in an Indian household was uh, nothing less than an adventure sport because it teaches you things that you can never learn anywhere in the world. And uh, I think personally for me, growing up in an Indian household is like growing up in a circus tent with all sorts of diverse talents, people, and then there's a ringmaster. And uh, I say circus, I use this analogy in particular because I think Indian kids are great jugglers. So, so we've learned how to balance both worlds, this new world and this old world of India. And, and we're, we're still learning to juggle and balance both these worlds. So. Um, and I, I grew up in a city called Calcutta in West Bengal. So that is, that has always been culturally immersed in its past. So people from our older generation are uh, entrenched in our cultural past. And uh, since we belong to a collectivistic society rather than an individualistic society, our, uh, I think our identity is always attached to our families. So, um, so growing up, there's always been pride or shame attached to our familial name. So if you do something great, uh, it comes back to your family. And if you do something that is uh, full of sharam or shame, so it comes back to your family name again. So I think growing up, you need, you need to be um, careful as to navigating both these worlds in, in a way. So yeah, so I think it's, it's been... It's been a riot. It's been a roller coaster oh, for us growing yeah, up. Absolutely. It's interesting. Like, do you, did you ever feel like a lot of pressure growing up then? Like in making decisions that, you know, obviously maybe were something that didn't align with what your parents believed in? Oh, oh absolutely. And uh, I think, it, I think I can, it's safe to say that all Indian kids feel this pressure growing up because you have to, you have to, like I said, go back. It, everything goes back to your family name. So you have to do something that makes your family name um, known. And, uh, you know, you have to, you have, you have to express your individuality in a way that it is also connected to your collectivistic name. So yeah, there's been a lot of pressure for us growing up. So how have you found you've been able to, I mean, your parents are obviously super, super cool and down to earth. And I know that you guys have definitely, you know, something you said the other day was you've grown up alongside your parents. Like you're both growing together into this 
into this new world that we live in. And I'm curious, you know, how, you know, could you give us an example of something that you've done to really push boundaries with your parents that they could, you know, understand and accept who you are and what you're trying to do in, in the course you're trying to take with your life? I think um, growing up, my parents weren't as level-headed uh, with us as I would have liked them to be. But it, it, I think it, as, as children, it's our duty to make them learn and grow up with us. So something like, um, I'd say, maybe getting a tattoo on your body or, or something which, is, which was considered as a taboo in Indian society. I think with my parents, I, I had really had to push the boundary. And even, and even though it was a big thing then, now it's, it's normalized. And now it's, you know, a lot of children are um, pushing the boundaries in so many ways so that their parents are also learning to understand that, okay, this is the new way. And it's all right if, if they do certain things, as long as they're not going out of the line. And I think with our, uh, with our commercial also, that I think my, my parents had to learn to, to, to really go out of the boundary and go out of their comfort zone. <laughs> do you want to give our listeners a quick overview of our commercial? <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Okay. So um, we did this commercial, both Jazz and I did this commercial uh, for Borosil, which was one of India's most progressive uh, LGBT ads. And it showcased LGBT couples living and, uh, and, it, and re- it really tried to push the boundaries of, of LGBT acceptance in, in India. And um, uh, I remember when, we, when the time had come for, for shooting and I told my parents about it, my parents knew about my sexuality, but they weren't accepting of it. They, they were still in denial. They had a hint of it, but they were apprehensive of, of um, me being public with it. So they were definitely not, uh, it was a definite no, and they were rigid about it. And so I had to hide this entire process of shooting the commercial itself until, of course, you stepped in and you spoke to mom and dad and, and they, 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 saw, they saw a, a middle path. And I think I'm glad that, that it, it, it's been a privilege that, um, you know, not a lot of parents would be so accepting of, of something like this. So, so, yeah, it's been quite the journey for us. Yeah, it's, it was so funny. I remember when we got to Bombay and you were telling me like, yeah, like they, they don't know I'm doing this. And I was like, what are you saying? Like this commercial is going to be all over India. Your parents are going to see it. There is no way that you cannot tell them before it airs. And I remember speaking to your mom on the ride home and, you know, just the, 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 that, that mom concern in her voice was just like the sweetest thing. But also you could tell that she... She wants to like trust you and build that relationship with you where you can, you know, where you are free and she is there to accept everything that comes your way and everything that you want to accomplish. And um, yeah, th- I, that was a really, that was a really beautiful experience to actually be part of that with you. Because um, not only are we like favorite people to each other, we are also, you know, we, we got to do this journey that really kind of challenged uh, stereotypes and people's opinions. And uh, right. we'll put the, for our listeners, the link for the commercials in the show notes. It's called First, ba- First, First Valentine. And yeah, it basically explores the day of uh, me and Nancy um, being a same-sex couple. And I'm like coming home from work. And, you know, she, she's decorated the house for Valentine's Day. And this was to celebrate uh, the abolishment of 377, which was the, basically the, the law that, that made homosexuality a criminal act. Um, 
which was also in the same cat category as bestiality at that time, which I just think is like the most insane thing ever. And you know what's really interesting too is I I learned this recently. I, well, not that recently. I guess in 2018 when I was running programs, um, I was working with this organization called um, Tarshi, uh, which they basically uh, they basically facilitate like sexual education um, to diverse groups, not just schools, but also like organizations so that more young kids can kind of understand sexuality because it's not talked about at home. And, um, you know, they were the ones who actually made it really clear to me that it was colonization and the rule of the Brits that actually made homosexuality illegal. Have you ever had a conversation about, about sex with your parents in your Indian household? Before moving to Delhi. (laughs) Oh, never actually in general. (laughs) I mean, um, it was always a thing that was that we knew that it's it's there, and, and like growing up, we we saw it on TV, but we never we never had a family discussion on it. It was just one of those things you know you don't have to talk about, and uh, yeah, <laughs> just just avoid it. Is that is that what it, the the tactic was? Just right. to completely avoid it. <laughs> deny, deny. It. Well, that's, that's how it goes. When did these first start like showing kissing scenes? in movies i think in late 2000s never i, I mean there always was uh, um in some way they show they portrayed kissing scenes but they portrayed it really art like in an artistic manner they showed two flowers coming <laughs> in together kissing and that kind of you know for, for that was the kissing scene of of late 90s but proper kissing i think came up only on indian screen in in late 2000s or early 20 2010s so interesting yeah and it's interesting that you you brought about um, the colonizer aspect to it because i think uh, what gogi also talked about was decolonizing the mind so i think in a lot of ways india needs to still decolonize the mind and uh, like for like let's consider english the english language it was the language of our oppressor but I think what's also interesting about India is how we've adopted and assimilated English and new India has grown up on English. And so we've used the oppressor's language to kind of unite with each other because there are so many diverse languages in India that, you know, that without English, we would not have been able to uh, perhaps converse with each other while staying in the same region. So in a way, we've really gone out of the way. We've adopted our oppressor's language and we've we've made it work for us so that's like that sums up i think that sums up the paradoxical nature of new and old india in mm. so many ways yeah that's a great point uh yeah there's like a different language every 100 kilometers i feel <laughs> when you travel <laughs> across india but what's also so fascinating is like you know my community here in india like everyone speaks at least three languages like list uh, list off the languages that you speak on <laughs> I, I know six, five to six languages, so that would be <laughs> French, uh, Hindi, Bengali, Punjabi, and a little bit of Urdu. So, like, that is yeah. just incredible. Um, <laughs> and something that I feel like is not celebrated enough is the fact that language is such a big part of India's culture. Like, actually, I was literally talking with my husband last night about language and this idea of like me trying to 
learn Punjabi <laughs> when, you know, I've, I've been, I, I studied Hindi when I first came to India five years ago. So I learned how to read and write. And that, that was like kind of my push to learn the language more because I thought if I can read it, I can, you know, I can read signs in front of me. I can read papers. And then if I, you know, not understanding certain words, I can always just ask. And then that was how, kind of how I built my language. Um, mm. However, like then you go to Punjabi, which is like based in like Urdu and there's connections there to Arabic, which you don't really see in Hindi. And then it's a different script and you're just like, oh my gosh, this is so much. And, you know, one of the things that came up between us was like, you know, he was like, I feel like there's a part of me that you might never know because, it, you know, the way that Punjabi is communicated is just so different and so poetic compared to English. Yeah. English, is actually, English language is actually very limited. Um, and yeah. we use so many descriptive words to like really actually describe something that so, so people really feel it in all their senses. Whereas in a language like Punjabi, it seems like you, there's, there's like a descriptive word for literally everything. Um, <laughs> and I'm curious, you know, like it, as someone who is an artist, you know, how does that translate into your music? You're writing in English, you're singing in English, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I know you, you, you play a little bit with languages as well, but I'm curious, like, what are some of the challenges you feel in expressing yourself um, in English compared to the other five languages that you speak? <laughs> No, that's that's a very good point because I I often find myself um, thinking in English all the time, but when it comes down to feeling, I think I feel I feel in Hindi or I feel in Punjabi and and in Rekta the most and and so so Rekta is uh, the mother language of Punjabi, Hindi, Urdu, and even Persian. So so when it boils down to feelings, I think uh, uh, I I think I don't I don't I don't use English for that. So there is, there is a, there's always a translator in my head, sitting in my head, who's, who's clocking out whatever I'm trying to do and whatever I'm trying to feel and is then trying to come up in English, which is not, uh, which is not how I feel. So, so there are boundaries to it, but uh, I think because we've grown up in English our whole lives and we've been to like, like, Particularly for me, I've been to an English-speaking school, and and I've I've heard and and seen so much mainstream American and British uh, television growing up. So I think it's it's not been that difficult for me to to try and translate my feelings. Language is just so powerful um, for connecting and cultivating community and expression. And I feel like we don't even we don't even appreciate. The, the power of language and how we communicate with others. That being said, you know, I feel like as someone who's been living here for quite some time and still struggles with, with, with Hindi and Punjabi, um, mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the best ways I've been able to communicate with others is just through body language um, mm -hmm. and smile, you know? <laughs> um, and I just think it's, it's so beautiful that even, you know, no matter where I go, even if I'm still struggling with the language, there's always a way to communicate through yeah. emotion um, and I feel like I'm going to take us so off topic because I just love talking about language and I wish I had more time to invest in languages but something else I'd love to really cover with you is okay so I've actually interviewed quite a few people in the past even for the Impact India podcast where 
you know, there's all these amazing people working in the social impact space who all have like engineering degrees <laughs> or like studying yeah. or studying medicine. And, yeah. you know, I'm curious, what has been kind of, I, I feel like the last kind of 20 years have really, really shaped this modern India and, you know, parents becoming a lot more progressive and accepting of like different, um, different fields of study. And I'm curious, yeah. you know, how have you observed that as, you know, uh, I, I guess you're like a baby millennial. I don't even know. What are you like generation <laughs> Z? I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, millennial and Gen Z. Okay, got it. So <laughs> seeing those ships in front of you, you know, what does that look like? Um, I'm really curious. Right. I, I think I was, I witnessed the shift with my own eyes because um, after, after a class 10 for high school, we need to choose between streams of science or humanities. And that's the pivotal age of, of choosing what you want to do with your life. If you want to take a science background, if you want to get into science or if you want to get into commerce or humanities or arts or so um, traditionally speaking in India, science has always been preferred science or engineering and medicine has always been preferred and and there's still this stereotype that indians need to go into medicine or or science and i think uh, that's because um maybe it, it could it, i think it's a contrib contributory factor to this that post partition um, in punjab's partition uh, our parents generation were the first kind of generation who had to face the post-partition effect. So we had to kind of build another India post-partition. So I think science was, maybe that's why it was preferred a lot more than arts because they had bills to pay. We had, we had a lot of infrastructure work to, to, you know, to carry on. But when it came to my generation, I think parents started taking a lot more interest in the fact that there can be a career based out of arts or language or literature too, which was not really seen in, in late 80s or 90s. So I think I've, I've, I've seen this, this shift happening. And I think it's for the better because, there, because a lot of uh, us are, are able to express ourselves and, uh, and, also, and also do science and, and law and medicine and, and you know, the, the traditional Indian jobs that we can do mm, yeah absolutely and i'm i'm curious you know in in regards to how the arts scene and humanities uh in india have developed you know can you give us like a, a for someone who hasn't been to india because i feel like there's definitely some misconception around uh what modern india mm. looks like and feels like and would you be able mm. to just kind of briefly describe what how you perceive the development of like the music and arts and humanities industries within india i think i think the stereotype of india has always been through bollywood and uh, whenever somebody thinks of music i think they think about bollywood and and late 80s 90s music and that is also very much india but um you know growing up in 90s india when you look at musicians you could count the number of Indian artists on your fingers and but and suddenly after 2010-2015 phase India saw this cesspool of musicians and talented artists mushrooming all over and and now regional artists can also showcase their talents and there are so many Indian indie artists who are you know for, for whom 
things are only getting better from here onwards. So I think uh, uh, for, for my parents' generation, uh, Western music was always uh, American mainstream pop music and nothing else, or it was just Bollywood. But now there's, there's so much more. There's so many people coming out and, and showcasing what they have and, and you know, setting India in, in a different light, which I think is great. I think it's through music and through art that uh, modern India can really set its own tone and flavor. And we don't need to bank on only Bollywood to, to define who we are. So I think a lot of people are coming out and, and setting the tone for themselves, which is great, which is how it should be. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's where that individuality stems from as well. It sounds like it comes full circle where it's like uh, right. young people of today have been given the space and the, to, to breathe and indulge in their passions and bring them to life. Um, yeah. Something that, uh, you know, I, I've always felt a little bit weird like saying this out loud, but obviously there's, there is a difference in uh, obviously the Western world uh, where, you know, I feel like people really pride themselves on like once they finish school, they like move out, they go to the big city or something, they get a big mm -hmm. job uh, or even not even necessarily a big job. They just get out of the house. Like, you know, everyone's main motive after school is like, I need to move out as fast as possible and live my life with freedom away from my parents. Yeah. Uh, but we really see the opposite uh, here often. Like, you know, it's, it's really, you know, it's, staying home is kind of this opportunity to obviously save money, to stay connected with your family. Obviously there's less freedom possibly, but you know, mm. if your parents are still pretty open and accepting, it's, a little, it's obviously easier to stay home and still be able to continue on. And I'm curious if that's maybe like nurtured more of that artistic journey, because obviously, you know, if I think about when I moved out at like 18, you know, like I didn't have the chance to like really dive into my passions right away because I just had to like make rent and, you know, get good grades mm -hmm. <laughs> in college kind of thing. <laughs> and I'm wondering, like, um, you know, I know obviously you did move out to Delhi and, yeah. you know, you were work, you were, you, you were interning and then you were working full time, but you were also being creative. And I'm curious to like, what kind of struggles here where, you know, obviously salaries for like a starting entry level position are obviously, you know, not as, not as high as they should be. Um, I'm curious mm -hmm. to like what kind of challenges you've navigated in kind of balancing all of that um, when, you know, because you are a person that I really look up to who's been able to both, you know, get her shit done, get creative, <laughs> you know, meet new people. And even, you know, even with, a, you know, a budget that you really have to stick within, um, what does that journey look like for you? And, and, do you feel that uh, other young people who are kind of in the artist scene who are staying home and kind of have the liberty to, you know, not have to pay for their own groceries and their own rent and stuff like that, um, if that, you know, in some way possibly ignites for them to go even deeper into their passion um, and not have to really worry because their parents aren't necessarily like, get out, get out of my house. <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> it does, it does. And I think Jazz, um, I look up to you too because you you're such a hustler and you've really inspired you. You keep doing so many things. So, so you're also somebody that you know people really look up to in, in oh, these thanks. things. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, good point again because um, 
for India, like you said, uh, for a lot of Indians, family is always the backup plan. It's always the go-to plan. So a lot of kids want to get out of their houses. A lot of kids like me wanted to get out of their house to, to do their own thing. But, but at the back of our head, we always know that if things don't work out, we can always come back home and we can always do the things. We can always take the, the alternative route, which, was, which is always, you know, um, being with the family and, and doing what, what they ask you to do. And so, so I think for a lot of Indian kids, um, going out is, is like getting, a, getting their slice of independence and, uh, and being, working for their passion. But it's always easy to, to, come, to come back home and find yourself again. So I think that, that space, a lot of Indian families have allowed that kind of space to, to kids while growing up. And uh, uh, when it comes to uh, jobs and fulfilling passion, I think uh, despite being in a corporate, I, 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 had, I, had, I made sure to pursue my passion for poetry and music and storytelling. And I think uh, as human beings, we owe it to ourselves. And no matter in whatever field we choose to make our rent in, I think we owe it to ourselves to to also pursue our our passion and find out our ikigai and and you know and like find out what we're actually good at and and when you only when you find that only when you find your ikigai I think you can do something that makes a difference to the world like you're trying to do here with this podcast and and inspiring so many people so many young kids who, who are still navigating their way so so yeah I think I owe it we owe it to us. I adore you. And I'm actually, I want to ask like a follow-up question now. So do you think that having your parents as a constant backup plan, and I'm not saying that like, I don't, like I, I also have a very supportive family who my mom is always like, just come home, you know, just come home. That's always her thing. Whenever I'm like, mom, it's so hard. She's like, just come home. Um, but I'm curious, you know, does that, do you think that maybe that also could be um, what's the word I'm looking for? That could be a barrier for someone's growth because they mm-hmm. always know that there's this backup plan where they're like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to try, but when things get really hard, like, fuck it, I'm going to just go home and, you know, just do whatever my parents want to do. Do you think that that might be in the back of the mind of some young people? Um, it could be. That, that that very well could be because it's like a safety net and you never really get out of your comfort zone if you know you have a safety net in in, in so many ways. So that could be a hindrance. But then uh, for a lot of uh, kids who come from a business background in India, I think they they take out time for themselves to figure out their passion. But at the end of the day, they know that they have to come back into their family business. And that's that's both that could be a good thing or a bad thing because I know so many friends who 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 go abroad to study because they want to explore themselves they want to find their passion but they they come back and you know they have to get into their family businesses there is no choice for them so yeah it's both it's both a boon and a curse in so many ways mm, yeah I feel that I actually just as you were saying that I just recalled like at least four friends who. <laughs> are currently <laughs> in a situation where honestly they're 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 kind of hurting because you know yeah. they've been they've been focusing on something that they love for so long but it's kind of like okay well now you're almost 30 so it's time to stop having fun and come work for the family yeah. business 
And I'm like, ouch, yeah. that, that hurts. And you know, then yeah. there's no longer any like investment from either the individual or the family in making sure that that person pursues their passions. Um, and that's heartbreaking. Yeah, <sighs> that is, that is. But on the plus side, there are amazing, you know, there are people who just don't give up. And I think that's what's so beautiful. And that's also what changes uh, India into this incredible, yeah. magical place where there is just so much opportunity now more than ever because young people are just saying no and they're going out and they're, you know, they're carving their own path. As they should. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's so exciting. And, and that's, you know, and that's honestly one of the things that's always inspired me about India is that, like, regardless of how many cultural, religious, racial, social, like, barriers are in the way, people are always, especially young people, are always persevering. So it's really, really exciting. Um, however, I'm going to switch gears here before we wind down, because of course, you know, one of, I know I, I actually still remember when I first, uh, moved to India in 2015, I remember friends mm -hmm. at home joking so hard about like, oh, you're going to go to India and you're going to get married and then you're going to be there forever. And I was like, no, like it's not going to happen. <laughs> I was like, there's no way. Like, I don't even like, you know, because I remember being so naive and so uh, just unaware of, you know, even what building relationships with like building romantic relationships would be like in India, especially especially because I was like living in the pins, you know? So I wasn't like I was in Delhi meeting a bunch of people at the time. So, you know, when it comes to dating in this modern world and like building relationships, meeting new people, obviously, uh, you know, the, the music scene plays a big role. India now has like 4 million dating apps. They even have their own dating apps that like, I, I remember seeing, actually there was a young boy that we used to work with at How to House who had some app that I'd never heard of before um, that basically was like all of the apps <laughs> in one. And like, there was just like a roulette of like different people from like that small town or village. And they were all just like chatting wow. with each other on this platform. And I was like, this is so dangerous because there was like so many different ages on, on uh, the app. And I was like, oh my goodness. But that's another topic for another day. But it's obvious that, you know, um, technology has, connected young people across India in a way that uh, India has never seen before, especially, oh, excuse you, sorry, um, especially when it comes to dating. So I'm, I'm curious, Mansi, give us an overview, like, what is it like to date in India, in modern India? I think um, before starting, what I have to say about online dating, I'd just like to get it out there that I love online dating. I think it's been a blessing. I think it's been um, so good for two reasons. Um, one is that India's population is huge. So it's impossible to find someone who's like-minded. And so I think online dating really simplifies the process of finding someone you like. And secondly, I think it's more exploratory because it's given a lot of options to a lot of young women for whom uh, marriage was and still is the only choice. So, so arranged they know they're about to be arranged married in, and, you know, and they'll enter a setup of where families will introduce each other and, and get their kids married. But now they know via online dating that they 
can still stick to their screens and enjoy the gamut of choices that's, that's before them. So I think it's given a lot of options for young women, especially for young women from conservative households. And um, I think uh, we've witnessed a colossal mind shift when it comes to online dating too, because I remember when online dating came around in India, it used to be like the secret affair and everybody used to, um, you know, hush hush on their app and, and it was only for curious minds or, or like for bad girls and bad boys. And it wasn't a thing, thing that, you know, a good, good people would be on. But um, it, didn't, it didn't take a lot of time for uh, old India to catch up with online dating too because, you know, we've already, we've been knee deep in online marriage bureaus or online marriage websites. So it, it really did not take long for uh, the older generation to also catch up and, and find that online dating is, is quite a, a viable option for kids. And I remember a funny, a funny thing. So, um, Recently, when I was looking up at how Tinder came about in India, I saw that Tinder was officially launched in India in 2016. But I clearly remember using Tinder in back in 2014 or 2015. So um, I think even before Tinder was officially launched in India, uh, college kids had already taken to it and college kids had already started networking from from the app. So that, that I think that's hilarious how, how in hindsight, we were so quick to adapt to um, online dating. I, I was drifting away and I remembered the Black Mirror episode, Hang the DJ, and how it shows that we're all living in a simulation. And it just, it, it'll be more time effective if we can find out the expiration date of our, of our potential uh, date. So it's like if you, go on a, if you go on a date and you enter the system, and you find out that you'll be together with that person for one year, two years, or four years. So I think, I think I'm looking forward to something like that in the future where we can hasten the process <laughs> even further. I would like AI to keep up <laughs> and let me know, you know, <laughs> how, much, how much longer do I have to stay with this man if I can continue with it or not. <laughs> I feel like we might be headed in that direction anyways because we're in such a dark age. Um, <laughs> um, I'm also curious in terms of, you know, this idea, like something that my husband shared with me recently was kind of like, you know, so we're based in Chandigarh and, you know, Chandigarh is like, obviously the, the only really like modern city in Punjab and how most people, mm-hmm. you know, from the different villages around, or even like, even if they're coming from like Ludhiana or anything like that, they would come here to like study or move here to kind of like find a significant other and settle down and I thought that was so interesting because I guess I mean you could say the same thing about western cities for sure like New York for example like you know Sex in the City definitely made New York famous for like this this magical place where everyone goes to like fall in love right and you know I'm curious you know is someone who moved from Calcutta to Delhi did you have any like expectations around kind of like what your love life would look like in moving to the capital and obviously you know having access to such a diverse population of people who are really from all over india as well Um, because delhi is still very much like it's very much like a refugee city as well from after partition but basically what i'm getting at is like i'm curious to um just maybe with the differences you saw when you came, any challenges, 
Um, or maybe it was just a lot easier to connect and meet people once you came to the capital. Yeah, I think um, Delhi has always been this cosmopolitan hub or like this melting pot of all different cultures of India. And again, I think if you look at Delhi, if you look at old Delhi and new Delhi, it signifies what I, I try to say when, you know, when I say there's an old, there's an old India and there's a new India. And I think that can be physically witnessed in only in, by staying in India. If you go to Chani Chowk, there's this old, um, the old ruin areas and then there's new the south delhi the new up, up, upcoming bourgeoisie um, you know kind kind of india that that you can see so i think uh, uh, from calcutta to delhi uh, in terms of meeting people i think it's been a, a big change because delhi brought out so many opportunities so many people and it kind of gave me this platform to to network with a vast variety of people, so to say. And so, so yeah, it was interesting to meet so many different people from India that I don't think I could have ever met if I, if I stayed back in Calcutta. And in terms of love life too, I think uh, I came at a time when uh, dating apps had were all over the place and, and I was in college and, you know, if all of my friends were on dating apps, just trying to, just trying to network, if, if nothing else, you know, and, it, it, it gave like a good um, boost to people to get to know each other despite uh, their physical uh, isolation. So yeah, I think, I think Delhi's been great that way. Is, is that what, what you wanted to ask? In, in, did I answer that? Yeah, yeah, I was, just, I was just looking for your experiences. I'm curious to know if, although, you know, young people have the, the freedom and, and the privilege to, you know, date around, actually, I shouldn't even say privilege, like it is your right to choose who you want to be with and who you want to see and who you want to date. But I'm curious, like, is, is family pressure of arranged marriage still really heavy on young people? Because um, obviously, we are seeing a lot more people choosing love marriages, choosing what they want, you know, even if, even uh, if their sexuality is not you know, condoned by their family. They're still like, I'm going to live my life, which is so beautiful. But, you know, does arrange, having an arranged marriage still really get in the way for a lot of young people and choosing who they want to be with and kind of what happens after their early 20s? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I think um, even if we talk about progressive families and the, the so-called modern India and the so-called modern families, I think... Uh, arranged marriage, the, the concept will never be really uh, shaken off unless caste and class system is, the concept of caste and class is eradicated because arranged marriage is basically ensuring that you get married to someone from your same caste or, or class and the same kind of living lifestyle. And I think until we tackle that problem, arranged, arranged marriage will always be there will always exist and parents would always want to meddle in you know the love life of their children and and like I said we're, we're from a collectivistic society so um, everything we do in our lives from what we eat to what we wear to who we talk to to our friends to our love life in so many ways more than we would like it to be our parents govern us and, and, you know, push us and keep nudging us into the direction that they feel is better for us, which I don't think I, I see in any other country. 
which is so unique to India because only 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 India ha- faces this kind of uh, dilemma of, of parents wanting to let go of their children and wanting them to pursue their passion and and be independent, but also kind of tugging them back with a with a rope and and asking them to you know come back to the family and and do this, but also do it our way. So yeah, it's been it has been a lot of pressure. Inhale the goodness, exhale the bullshit. Thank you for listening, and thank you for doing the work. Be sure to jump over to curatedconsciously.co for more stories, tips, and inspiration for nurturing your conscious living journey. And be sure to follow along on Instagram at curatedconsciously. Huge shout out to my incredible husband, Profound Sound, for the original dope tracks. Hope you all enjoyed, are feeling a little lighter, and are going into a beautiful and blessed day.